the, what you have to do is you now have to fill that void in your life with something else. You've created a void and you identified yourself as I am the type of person that, and they can fill in the blank, outworks people, that is an athlete, that is a competitor, that um, is so confident with their body and their um, work capacity. I am dot, dot, dot. You need to recreate, fill in that dot, dot, dot. And until you do that, you're going to continue to live with anxiety because you now have a void that's not being filled. And no matter what you try to pretend, it's not going to happen. We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run, always chasing, never stopping. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. How are you, Ben? Good. Thanks, Patrick. Today we're returning to our two-minute drill. Two-minute drill, for those folks who might be new, is uh, when listeners send us very good questions, and then I call through our long list of them and uh, put together 10 to 12 to present to you, and your challenge is to answer them within two minutes, which we take very seriously. Um, and as always, the questions are random, but within the scope of things we always talk about. Challenge accepted. Cool. First question. I'm constantly making excuses before I do a workout, like I slept so bad last night, or my shoulder injury hurts with this movement, so I can't go rx or I wore the wrong shoes today. I make sure everyone around me knows so that they don't judge my bad performance. How can I get away from this mindset? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is part of the victim mentality. Um, and it's one of the most detrimental things we can be doing to ourselves is repeating those um, those mantras, those excuses, those things which do not serve us, which do not make us better. And breaking that habit, it's a great, it's a great question because the awareness level of where this person is, is light years ahead of where most people are that are doing this but aren't mm. um, aware of it and, and from there aren't um, willing to even accept the, the, necess- the necessity to change because it's easier to be in this place. It's easier to set yourself up and what they're doing is they're preemptively setting themselves up for failure so that when they don't succeed, they're meeting their expectations. And when you meet an expectation, um, there's a level of satisfaction with that. So, oh my gosh, like I, I should just stayed up all night studying. Like, um, okay, so people are like, okay, they're not gonna do that well. As a, And what we first have to realize is no one cares. Mm. Like it's a Pat Sherwood thing, like no one cares, train harder. <laughs> Yeah, that's the first one. You're only doing this to yourself, and if you've been doing this long enough with the same people, they're recognizing the behavior and they don't enjoy it either. So the fact this person is already at the level where they're asking, "How do I break it?" is is a is a strong place to. It's a strong power of position. It's a, a power of position that they can move forward with this. So how do you break it? It's most. It's it's this can be the most anticlimactic answer in the world. Is you don't say it. Yeah. You break you stop, the chain. You so your thoughts become you stop. Right. Your thoughts become your words, and your words become your actions. You repeat those actions long enough and dictates who you become as a human being. So we are now aware of a uh, a place in the chain that we can change it. So what we need to do is take those thoughts. They're going to creep in. 
They're going to come. You don't allow yourself. It's as simple as that. You, 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 the, the words want to come out. And when they want to come out, you swallow them. And what you do is you, you habits are what you repeatedly do. And all of a sudden you are going to recreate the habit loop. And when those thoughts come next time, they won't come out. And over time, you continually working on that. Over time, those thoughts will start start to change. So it's as simple as that. You just literally break the chain by don't speaking them. Now, I wish that I had some sort of um, catchy uh, little hack to this, but there's, it's not. It's as simple as it is hard. Mm-hmm. Stop saying it. But something like your no complaint bracelet or the theory of that be useful, do you think? You know, if you hear yourself, you know, yeah, if you're already people, aware yeah, of it but- enough – that, that you can hear it, maybe that's a, maybe that's a tactile way to, to get yourself to stop. Yeah, so there's other theories behind that. So one is the, what you're mentioning is we have a no complaints, um, never whine, never complain, never make excuses bracelet. Mm-hmm. So when you're throwing those things out there, that is an excuse. It's an excuse preemptively as to why you are not gonna do well in this workout. What you could do is literally snap every time you say that so you realize that that physical pain of the bracelet snapping you is actually causing you and the people around you, by the way, Mm. harm. You will not perform as well with those thoughts in your head. Or you could do it in a positive way, whereas every single time you swallow one of those thoughts and don't let it come out, you can reward yourself. You can reward yourself with whatever it might be. You get to – I don't know what it is. You get to – change the music that you're going to work out to. I'm not sure what the right reward system is for that, but um, there's a couple different ways you could probably hack it and kind of build in some reinforcing reinforcements into the habit loop. Got it. Cool. Next question. My assistant at work who I do not have hire and fire power over is a wine complain, make excuses type of person. How do you (laughs) combat constant complaining? Yeah, so this is the same thing, but from the from the, an, an external point of view, <laughs> yeah. the receiver exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, this one is actually it's as simple as it is hard, but I would actually say that this one is harder because this one requires you to be a leader. Mm. Um, if you're not willing to take the position of leadership, you're basically going to continue to sit there and just say, "I have no control over this. This is outside of my um, circumstances. I I can't influence this, so I'm just going to let it be." What leaders do is leaders grab onto things and say, I am going to influence this. Now, good leaders do this in a really positive and productive way that inspires the person to change on their own. But at a minimum, what you want to do is what the person in the last um, question had already established, which is a level of awareness. And have if you're a good leader, you're going to have a good conversation, a productive conversation that doesn't cause them – um, it's not demeaning. It doesn't cause them to retreat. It actually causes them to come another step closer towards you. You're going to use this as a, as a door to open up to further the relationship and further the bond and the trust between the two of you, showing that you care about this person. It has to be done in a tactful way. This is not something that you, you might stumble a little bit the first, third, 13th time you try to have a conversation like this. Mm-hmm. But the way to do it is to have the conversations and bring awareness to it and start off with the, the awareness level. You know, Sally, um, I can't help but notice it seems like you're um, pointing out a lot of negative things throughout the day. 
what are you talking about, Bill? Well, when that last customer called, you hung up the phone and said X, Y, and Z. What you're doing is you're bringing awareness to the negative aspects of the job. What you look for, you will see more of. It's called the frequency illusion. If you look for yellow cars, you can see more yellow cars. As you talk about the negative aspects of the job, you're gonna see more of those things. Not only you, but everyone around you. That's gonna bring the performance of the organization down. Not sure how to approach this, but like my take on this, Sally, would be that we try to like flip the script a little bit and not whine, complain, make excuses. Here's a white bracelet. Let's see <laughs> if this thing works. Like mm -hmm. just have the conversation. Next question. I'm a 48-year-old uh, woman, and when I do workouts, my heart rate is frequently in the 170s, sometimes even up to 180. My spouse and friends don't seem to get their heart, ra heart rates up nearly that high. I'm not winning the workouts, but I'm also not way behind. Is my heart rate something I need to work on? If so, how? Um, yes and no. So I, here's the thing is heart rate is cool. It's not the end all be all. Yep. I would be much more interested in your resting heart rate than I would be at what your heart rate is during the workout. Your resting heart rate tells a little bit to me more about your overall health than how high you can get your heart rate during a workout. That is very individually specific. So there are certain people at the Tour de France when they are kind of making a, the climb that can pin their heart rate. So um, in the Olympics, um, there is um, in a, uh, the, the rowing event. It is a 2K row, which we as CrossFitters are all too familiar with. Mm -hmm. There are athletes there that can pin their heart rate at 210 for the entirety of the whole thing. That's insane. But there are other athletes that are equally as fit doing the same event that have their heart rate 15 beats lower than that. That is not an indicator of overall fitness. It's very relative. So I wouldn't get freaked out that you or your heart rate is either higher or lower than your classmates or your friends. Now, if you were to ask me, how can I um, increase my work output? How can I, what we wanna be able to see is over time, you be able to do the same amount of, um, of work with a lower heart rate. That is an indicator of fitness. So it's weird in the CrossFit world, but imagine, um, oh, maybe it's not. Let's do Fran in four minutes. Now, if you do Fran in four minutes and your average heart rate is a uh, 175, and then you do it two years later and you do it in four minutes and your average heart rate is a 155, that is an indicator. It is a correlate to improved fitness. It is not improved fitness. If the time before you did that and your heart rate was spiked and super high, maybe you had a bunch of caffeine before, maybe you had other stresses in your life. There's so many other things outside of heart rate, I'm sorry, outside of the exercise that influence your heart rate. And what most people do is go, well, to get fit, I need to get my heart rate up a lot. And that in and of itself is not a true statement. Hmm. Having a high heart rate does not make you fitter. Now it's hard to get fit without raising your heart rate, that's true. But if you just take a bunch of speed and cocaine, if you just like you have to do a bunch of public speaking, your heart rate rises. Yeah, it stresses stress, and your heart rate's gonna, you know, if you become a drug addict, you know, an amphetamine like. Um, meth addict, your heart rate's gonna pound through the roof. That is, trust me, that's not gonna make you fitter, <laughs> but your heart rate is consistently higher than it would be otherwise. So what we wanna do is disassociate, in my mind, this, this need and this dependency of heart rate as the indicator for my fitness. The indicator for your fitness is how much work can you do in, amount, in a set amount of time, 
or in a set amount of time, uh, said another way, or a set amount of work and how long does it take you to do it? That is an AM, that is an AMRAP with a fixed amount of time, how much work can you do, or for time, fixed amount of work. Those are the real indicators of fitness. So the person that asked this question, what they should be doing is reframing it a little bit and going, I'm not finishing first, I'm not finishing last. Um, what should I be doing to improve my fitness? Don't worry so much about the heart rate thing, it's relative. Much as HRV is, if you're like a whoop type person, um, HRV is relative as well. My HRV is consistently higher than Katrin's. Mm. I am not as fit as Katrin. Mm -hmm. But they will tell you, and people, if you raise research, there is this sort of loose correlate to higher HRV means higher levels of fitness. Yes, but it's more of a relative aspect. You as a person over time want to work to increase your HRV, but it's not necessarily whose HRV is higher, that person is fitter. Um, just to be uh, clarifying, HRV is heart rate variability, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. So it's a measure of, um, it's actually the, the, the consistency of your heartbeats. Um, and it's very, very highly correlated to stress. So if you are in a stressed environment, um, work is beating you up, your relationships are crappy, you're sleeping really bad, you have a lot of things on your mind, uh, you've been drinking, your HRV is going to plummet. It will go down. If you live the life of a Zen master, you're totally at peace and you've reached self-actualization, then your HRV will be much, much higher. We've talked before about um, um training zones, right? Uh, one, I think mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, it just, just listening I'm out of curiosity. Do you feel like that's, that's maybe, a um, you think that that's maybe like a, a, a suboptimal way to be thinking about your training? In other words, like, Oh, I'm in zone three. No. That's good. Zone four nope. today. No, okay. no, it's, it's a useful tool. It's okay. a useful tool, but it's more as a, um, so it's a, Okay, so let me back up. If I was to answer this question, if the person that asked this question, um, if we truly wanted her to work on lowering her heart rate, I would have her do a whole bunch of zone two stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's just not the goal. Like, why are we trying to lower your heart rate? Like, that's just not, what does that mean for you at, yep. you know, I need a whole, need to know a whole lot more information about the person asking the question to be able to prescribe that we should be working a lot in zone two. So just put a picture of that zone two is um, where you, it's it's quote unquote in the old the old Globo Gym vernacular and um, cardio world, it's the fat burning zone. Mm -hmm. It's basically about 60 to 70% of your maximum heart rate. It is where you are, um, um, you're very effectively shuttling out waste products. Um, things don't hurt very much. And if we were to be riding bikes next to each other, we could essentially hold almost a normal conversation. Every now and then I might have taken extra breath before I continued my sentence. And I could keep talking to you, Patrick, just like this. Mm -hmm. Whereas zone three, I'd be talking more like this in some bits and chunks and maybe taking a few extra breaths in between. Zone four would be kind of the opposite of that where I could get some words out in between lots of breathing in zone five. I'm, I, it's hard for me to get any words out. It's just a, it's, an, it's an intensity level at which we're working. Um, those zones are useful. They are they are a, they, they create a nice framework for the intensity levels at which we can and should be exercising at. Um, but what we also need to realize is the zone two world um, 
has its place. But if you're to do one thing and one thing only, to me, it would be the zone four or five. And that's why the popularity of these HIT workouts, H-I-I-T, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. high intensity interval training has come to light over the last three or four years. Well, <laughs> call it what it is. H-I-I-T training, HIT training, high intensity interval training is a dumbed down version of CrossFit. Mm-hmm. CrossFit is every single time you do it, I should say that, 95% of the time you do it is HIIT training. The only times it's not is when you do something like a 2K row. That is not. That is a lactic gas burner where you're going. But even when you do something like Fran, you are doing high intensity interval training. If you're like, what are you talking about? It took me four minutes. Mm-hmm. I went straight through. Probably not. You mm-hmm. probably got done with the 21 thrusters and put the bar down and took two, three, five, 15 seconds of rest before you started your pull-ups. And then maybe you got your pull-ups straight, you did 21, and then you probably took two, three, five, 15 seconds of rest before you picked up the bar. Chances are you're doing a four-minute frame, you did not get those thrusters straight, you had to put the bar down and you rested. Work, rest, work, rest, work, rest is Mm -hmm. interval training. Now talk about high intensity, bro. (laughs) Fran. Yeah. Okay, next question. That was not two minutes. You suckered me into that one. No, the (laughs) has has a CFNE athlete come back. the witness. (laughs) Has has a CFNE athlete come back to training after testing positive and quarantining for COVID? If so, how did they build back up to training? I tested positive a week ago and don't know where to begin in my training again. Okay, Uh, so there's a few questions in there. Um, No. No, no one has tested positive at CFNE and come back to training. Um, we have had some people that have uh, tested positive, but they were in asymptomatic. Uh, actually, I take that back. Um, the only people that have tested positive were former members. Okay. Um, no one that is currently coming to the gym has tested positive. So, um, wish I had real world tangible um, um, advice to give here. So I have to give it theoretically and um, hypothetically. So if you were coming back from COVID, um, to me, that would be, are you asymptomatic or, or not? If you are um, asymptomatic, meaning you you did not have a cough, you did not have to be on a respirator, you did not take medication, you were not bedridden, you were not sick, um, you just had to be in quarantine, it would be a very quick, easy ramp up. Just like you would be, if anything, if you took a two-week vacation, you're coming back to the gym, it's probably a one or two day, kind of like, hey, let's just chill out. We're doing... Um, we're doing Adderall today. Adderall is a really mean workout. Why don't we kind of just pare it down by doing it this way instead? If you were sick and you were trying to come back from being sick, that's a very different conversation. You're coming back from an injury. Mm. Now call it whatever it is, whether it's um, a pregnancy, whether it's a, uh, a time off from for, because of uh, extreme travel, work, or whatever it might be. If you have this prolonged period of time to the point where you're um, – your performance is diminishing on top of just the time away, which what is what happens when you are sick or injured. You have to fight through not only the deconditioned aspect of time off, but also rehabilitating back to normal. What I would do like in any situation of these things is allow yourself the 15 workouts to come back. So it's not a time thing. It's not a set protocol thing because everyone's gonna be so individualized coming back from that. What you need to do is create an expectation for somebody or this person themselves that it's going to take you 15 workouts to get back. Now it's up to you how you do those 15 workouts. You come five days a week, that's gonna be three weeks. 
You come once a week, that's gonna be three months. So it's up to you, uh, almost four months. So it's up to you. So it really is, it's about how frequently you're getting back into it. And when I say, um, come back to it, the way I would do this is there is no scoreboard for you. You don't get to keep track of rounds. You don't keep track of time. And we're gonna scale everything down to where there's no, it's not jointy, it's not, you're not failing reps. We're gonna make sure it's all um, enjoyable, fun, and smooth sailing because the recovery between the sessions is the number one thing we gotta work on, not how much you're getting out of each session. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, got it. I'm a former competitive CrossFitter, and while I'm not anymore, I struggle with shorter training. I always end up wanting to do more work. What advice would you give to somebody in this situation? How would how would you cope with the anxiety of doing less work but still keeping a certain level of fitness? Uh, so the first thing I would do as a person is why are you doing less? Mm. So if you if you if if it's if it's causing anxiety for you to do less work, um, why do less? Just don't keep score. Don't put as much emphasis on the the intensity level, and just continue to continue to do your weightlifting, continue to do your track sessions, continue to do those things. And like, if that's what makes you feel good, then go for it. Like that's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with, with that amount of exercise. You're, it's what it's, it's who you are as a human being. It's now built into your DNA. It's, it's what creates fulfillment for you. So uh, I, that would be the first thing. Now, if you're like, if the person goes, well, I feel like the reason I stepped away from comp- competing was because all that volume was causing injuries then that's a different discussion. Yep. Okay. So now we have a real thing that, but if it's just a psychological thing, let's just work with the psychology. But if it's a physiological thing or it's a um, environmental thing, meaning like um, I now have kids and that's why I stepped away or I have a job or I need to go back to school or there's other things, then what we need to do is truly get to what this person is asking is how do I, how do I um, tell myself a different story? Mm-hmm. And the reason that what you have to do is you now have to fill that void in your life with something else. You've created a void and you identified yourself as I am the type of person that, and they can fill in the blank, outworks people, that is an athlete, that is a competitor, that um, is so confident with their body and their um, work capacity. I am dot, dot, dot. You need to recreate, fill in that dot, dot, dot. And until you do that, you're going to continue to live with anxiety because you now have a void that's not being filled. And no matter what you try to pretend, it's not gonna happen. Mm. You now need to be, I am the type of person that trains for health and longevity, and I am so much happier with the balance of my life that I can now spend an extra 90 minutes with my kids. And I'm seeing the fruits of the time I'm spending with my kids come through in all these different amazing, terrific ways. Or Now I am the type of person that um, can run a small business and I can still stay fit and I can still do this. I, I'm the type of person that has extreme balance and I don't get pulled out of whack no matter what society tells me to do. Like I am so sound in my values system and beliefs and my principles. And uh, you have to fill the void with a, the story you're telling yourself about who you are. Mm, love that. Next question. Out of the 10 characteristics of athletic fitness, which one is the most important? Which one takes the longest to develop? Oh, wow. We did a whole so episode of the, of the, of the, yeah, we did a yeah. whole episode on breaking down each one, but I don't know if we tackled specifically, I don't know if I made right. you say, no, which is cool the most question. important. I love, I love this. Like, yeah, I love this stuff. Like, um, who would win a fight Superman or Batman? 
Like right. that's what this is. It's just yeah. like hypothetically, we're saying like, you can only <laughs> develop one of the ten characteristics. Now you have to put all these parameters around there. It's like, are we fighting in Superman's world or Batman's world? <laughs> like, it says, you know, is, is Batman allowed to grab kryptonite? Like, so it's those type of questions. It's like, yep. well, okay, if you develop um, speed, does that transfer over to power? If like, if you, yeah. if you're, are you maxing out ten in one and the others become zero, or are you fifty percent in all of them? You're looking for one to be amazing, or like, there's a lot of parameters around this. So without putting any of those <laughs> disclaimers or those um, clarifiers around it. Um, okay, so 10 components of fitness, get people up to speed. It is um, cardiovascular endurance, strength, stamina, flexibility, speed, power, um, accuracy, coordination, um, balance, and did I miss one? I think I got them all. Um, accuracy, agility, accuracy, agility, coordination, balance. Um, so those are the 10. Of those ones, I would have to say, everyone's gonna poo-poo me because like strength, it's all about being <laughs> the strongest. I'm going to say that the most important, and people probably think I'm gonna say endurance because I was a former triathlete, it's not. To me, it's coordination. Mm. Um, it's can you put movement patterns together? If yep. you can't put movement patterns together, you live in isolated movement patterns. I mean, you can't throw a baseball, you can't stand up. You can only do one joint at a time. That's what coordination is, is can you move from core to extremity? Meaning can you brace your core and let your arms and your legs do what they're supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Without coordination, you can't walk. You can't stand, <laughs> you can't, you basically become, you don't get to use any other nine unless you have coordination. So that's the, that's where I would go with that one. Now the other question was which one takes the longest to develop? Yeah. Um, I'll go with uh, uh, I'll go with power. And the reason I'll go with power is um, my first answer, as I thought about it just then in real time, my first blush would have been strength. The, the saying is, you know, I can get you, I can get you conditioned in months. Strength takes years. So if you want to be at the point where you can clean and jerk 300 pounds, I can't do that for, and you're starting me as a novice. I can't get you to do that this year. Mm -hmm. But if you're starting me a novice, um, I could get you to run a six minute mile this year. If you're going to bust your ass, that's, that's possible. Um, so it's, it would become strength, but what is power? Power is strength times uh, it's strength with velocity, mm -hmm. with how fast you can move something. So now we're pulling in the coordination aspect. We're pulling in the other aspects of speed. So it's a higher, more developed aspect of strength. So strength, for layman's terms, strength, think deadlift, power, think clean. Mm -hmm. So it would take you longer to develop a clean than it would to develop a deadlift. So that's why I will go with power for the longest to develop. With the coordination one, do you, how do you feel like we or somebody would train that intentionally? You know, if it is, if it is the most important, is it simply doing uh, a lot, you know, a lot of mix of different movements that demand coordination and, and the time under tension spent doing that is what develops it? Or do, is it possible no, to develop that more intentionally? Yeah, we're, so here's the thing is when we hear coordination, we go, we go to the, our mind goes to the extremes, yep. which is like, okay, so I need to be able to like juggle while tight roping while <laughs> right. also being able to like play poker yep. at the same time. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't need, so it's, it's because it's so ingrained into our training already yep. that we bypass it for like, what is the next level of it? In CrossFit, we're training this all the time. So from a, 
Um, so what would be a, a um, if we're going to train our lats, like we're going to train our lats, what would be the most um, um, isolated, non-coordinated way movement to train our lats? It would be literally just to kind of like flex them in yep. place. We're just going <laughs> to yep. flex our lats. Yep. Bodybuilding, just like can you flex your lats? And then it becomes things like um, machine rows, right? And then it becomes things like seated rows where it's a cable and it's a little more free. And then it becomes things like um, like pull-ups. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes even more coordinated when we add in things like kipping pull-ups. It becomes even more coordinated when we add in things like butterfly pull-ups. So it's like it's all we're doing is ingraining more and more body parts into a movement pattern. So because it's so ingrained in the way we train all the time anyway, the fact that we do Olympic lifting and gymnastics and double unders and box jumps and all of these things, we are training coordination at a massive level already. Mm-hmm. We don't need to seek it out any farther. If you did want to seek it out farther, it would be as simple as play sports. And that's mm-hmm. why Greg Glassman ingrained that into the 100 Words of Fitness yep. is because when you experience expose yourself to new sports, usually what the limiting factor there is the skill set, is the movement patterns, is the coordination of the new movement. Like try to throw a baseball with your non-dominant hand. The reason you can't do it as well is because it's a new endeavor to you and the coordinated, it's not that you don't have the strength, it's that the coordinated movement pattern hasn't been built in yet. Got it. Next question. How did Katrin overcome her herniated disc so well? I herniated a lumbar disc about or a few lumbar discs about three months ago, and I'm still very far from getting fully back into CrossFit. I've been solely focusing on recovery, but can't wait to get back at it. Okay, they said, how long ago did they say they heard it? Uh, Three months ago. Okay, so the first thing is, it took her longer than three months, so chill out. Um, She herniated her disc in, um, we don't know exactly when it was. We don't know if it was actually at last at at the 2019 games or was it shortly after the games, but it was somewhere um, around August or September. She did not get back to training full time, full speed until April. Mm. So that's half of a year. Yep. So um, as superhuman as she is, um, we had to take it really slow and with a lot, a lot of precautions, um, and. She could not go below parallel with load for five months, mm-hmm. maybe six. Mm-hmm. So as it looks like she got back super fast, it really took her the entirety of the year because the CrossFit Games were actually 13 months after her injury. Yep. So we were actually unable to go full speed, full movements, everything until July this year. So thank God the games were moved. Yep. Um, and July was nine months post-injury if not 10. So she didn't, she didn't heal as fast as it looks like. She's human, just like you are. I've been doing CrossFit for seven years and comp train for the last two. I'm still in the phase of my training where I'm able to see consistent improvements across all movements. I'm also aware that eventually there comes a point of diminishing returns. What can be done to delay reaching that point? And how do you recognize that you've reached it? Okay. Um, Cool awareness level for this person. Yeah, so there is a there is the law of diminishing returns, where it's just as you become more and more um, proficient, your your areas of improvement become smaller and smaller. And everyone kind of knows this is like uh, when you start learning to play guitar in the beginning, like you go from not being able to do anything to be able to play a few chords, to be able to put some songs together, to be able to play songs. Mm-hmm. And then as you get 
farther and farther along, it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller to become a virtuoso. It's the same thing with weightlifting, which everyone's experienced is, you know, in the beginning, I, you can only bench press 45 pounds. You, you train consistently with, in, with intention. And three years later, you can bench press, you know, 250 pounds. It's a massive improvement. Um, but then from there, the laws gets, the, the, the gains become smaller and smaller. So what can you do to um, mitigate those? It basically becomes everything outside of training. So one is like obviously is train smart. That's I'm mean, going to like say that that's the that's the price of admission. I'm going to say this mm-hmm. person is training smart. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes everything outside of that, which allows you to recover faster and get back in the gym and maximize the gains from every single training session, so you continue to make gains. So what are the things outside of the gym? It's the other factors of fitness that we talk about all the time. So. It is your nutrition and maximizing nutrition. It is your sleep, doing the best you can to make sure you're um, creating an, an internal environment that is primed to um, accept the nutrients and um, heal the things that are, are being broken down from training and not healing other things. So getting yourself out of a pro-inflammatory state, AKA just eat real food. Mm-hmm. Um, the next is sleep. The next is proactive recovery. So that's things like foam rolling, body tissue, taking them out of right amount of time, um, and then mitigating other life stressors. So um, if you have a really high stress job, if you don't get along with your family, if you um, um, if you're a full time student, um, whatever it might be, if you live in a war zone, like any one of those types of things would be would would um, speed up the point at which you would not see gains as quickly as you might otherwise. Um, and I, I don't know if um, you particularly answered it, but how do you recognize when you reach it? Is it as simple as you look at your, your Everyone, workout logs? Yeah, it's and- just, yeah. Yeah. So I'm jealous of this person. It's a, you're in an awesome place to be. This is like, you know, it's what they, it's what kind of what they call beginner's luck. It's like, yeah. Oh my God, I PR'd again. Yep. I, and you walk in the next weekend, it's like, I PR'd again. <laughs> um, you know, it's like training any serious athlete in their later teens. Like they're just going to all, they're gonna, every single time that they go for a PR, they're going to set a PR. Yep. And then us athletes in our forties, those are reserved for like every three years. Um, so it's as simple as that. It's how frequently the PRs, you know, the personal records, um, are, are coming at you. Three more questions. One of my clients wants to lose weight and we started to plan his nutrition. I believe in consistency and small changes, so I don't really like cheat days or cheat meals, but this client wants to have a cheat day. When he asked me if he could have one, I told him the, I told him the likely repercussions, plus he hasn't actually lost any weight yet, but he's insisting he deserves a cheat meal and, ha- and has an excuse for all of my explanations. How might I handle this situation better? Cool question. Hard question. Okay. So, um, so I think what they want me to, to answer is, um, do you believe in cheat meals and should I tell them that they should not have them or not? Um, and that's kind of a mute point because you can, you can do a nutrition program, lose a lot of weight with cheat meals, or you could do it without. So that's, I don't need to pick sides on that one. The answer lies in creating greater trust between you and the client. Mm. That's what it really comes down to. You guys are clashing. You're trying to get them to do something they're not willing to do. So how do you get them to buy into you more? You said that you're giving them all the reasons and they're still not listening and so they're fighting you back and giving you all the excuses and they're not making uh, gains. So 
it comes down to it's, it hurts. It hurts to hear this. You're not doing your job mm. and your job is not to give them the right protocol because any protocol can work. It doesn't matter if you had them do the Hollywood cookie diet, it would work. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of rights and wrongs. It's a matter of empathy and seeing things from their point of view. So you can create the trust so you can speak to them in a way that they go, yeah, yep, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. That's coaching. That's 101. That's the most important thing is getting people to buy in to you. And the way you do that is by buying in to them and start off by listening. So there's probably some things that if you sat down and go like, hey, what do you want to do? Like what, what's, you tell me, like, what's the deal? Like what, what would you like? What's your perfect world? And they do this and go, okay, now tell me, what you're struggling with. Why can't we do that perfect world? Talk to me. Like, mm-hmm. what's the thing that's keeping you from doing exactly what you just explained to me? What is it? What's the hangup? Um, and then get them to get them to open up. Until they open up, you can't get in. Mm-hmm. Next question. My gym has been a consistent comp trained programmed gym for a long time. Recently, a new coach decided to switch classes from running CompTrain class to CompTrain individual programming. Within uh, within an hour, that's not enough time to get through it all, and we often cut the warm-up short and only do one additional part of the CompTrain individual programming. Thoughts on this approach? Yeah, it's the wrong approach. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. So good question because your coach is wrong, unfortunately. Um, and I just have to be as bla- as 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 um, blatant as that. Um, the reason we created CompTrain class was because we wanted people to be able to do CompTrain in the class. You cannot do the CompTrain individual programming in the class setting. Yeah. Unless. You have a dedicated comp train class, which is at minimum two hours long. Like it's got to be a two hour class at minimum. And if you don't have a two hour class, it makes no sense. Less is not more. What we need to be able to do is we, we did is we created comp train class, which is a product that right now it's on SugarWad. It's not on our app. It's on SugarWad. And it's how do you um, coach the Metcon piece of comp train. Cause that's the only part that should be in the class. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's a strength piece as well. And it's speaking to coaches. It's a lesson plan. Yep. So here's the warm up. Here's the mobility. Here's the stimulus. Here's the strategy. Here's how you do a practice round. Here's the teaching points. Here's the timeline for all of this. Here's the thing we want to reinforce during the workout and after. So it's a product that was created for coaches because we realized that there's a lot of gyms out there that are trying to do comp train and um, we love that. It's amazing. Um, but they should be doing comp train individuals. They should be doing comp train class. You know, of gyms who are doing like a comp train individual class, like they've got it on the calendar and it's like two hours long. There is. Uh, yeah. We have heard of that. Yeah. Oh, yep, cool. There's a few and we're toying with bringing that back actually at CFNE. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. We okay. did it. We did it for a while. We did it on Saturdays way back in the day, um, yeah. in the early days. And then we did it uh, a couple, like at certain times during the week. Um, we stepped away from that a lot, but we're thinking about bringing it back a little bit. Cool. All right. Last question we've got for you today. Is it important or necessary to test workouts that you're prescribing to your gym? I see a lot of coaches doing it, but I don't understand the reasoning. 
Okay, so the reasoning to is to it's very easy to under or over program a workout, mm-hmm. meaning it misses this intended stimulus. So the reason that coaches do it beforehand um, is to just do that and experience it. Um, we do not do that, but we I've also been programming. Um, I've been doing this since 2007, so now we're going on year 13, 14. Um, so I, I can kind of kind of not perfectly, and I miss it a lot. Um, but I can guess fairly accurately what the is the is the intended stimulus going to be hit. Mm-hmm. So I don't test them before I write them, but I do um, experience them before I coach them. So mm-hmm. I always take a class before I coach the class. That's a totally different thing. And then I really, really know how to deliver the class product to the end users. Otherwise. I haven't experienced it myself. It would be like trying to talk to somebody, being like the tour guide for a, like a, for a roller coaster, and you've mm-hmm. never been on the roller coaster, mm-hmm. and being like, "You're gonna really love turn number five, and Mary, <laughs> make sure you keep your hands in at this point." And people are like, "What are you talking about during this point? We're we're not even moving." It's like you're just taking your best guesses at the what ride's gonna be like. Yeah. If you actually take the test, or take the ride, or do the workout, then you can really speak to it. And so. Um, I like that people are testing beforehand. Um, I think that as you get, uh, um, I don't, but I don't think it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a nice to have, not a need to have. All right, my friend. Thank you for that. Thank you to everybody who sends us questions. If you want to send us a question for a future two minute drill, you can find me on Instagram PS Cummings and just send me a DM and I will read them, respond and add them to our long list until next time. Stay strong. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.